0: Podcasting from the doing the most capital of the world by way of New York, New York via the internets. This is Bagels and Plantons, a podcast by, for, and showcasing every day, round the way, but always dope as fuck, multifaceted people of color doing the damn thing and doing it well. Every week, we and our guests will be sharing the blueprint and the stories that explore the intersectionality of being black, brown, bothered, and unbothered while thriving and navigating their passions, spaces, and communities. I'm your host, Deidre Edehan. And I am your host, Christina Torres. And here we go. Hi, this is Deidre. And we only have one of the two Bagels and plantains here today, but we do have a special guest. We have Erica Stallings here. Erica's an attorney, a writer, and a BRCA awareness advocate. And we're going to get into all of that in just a few seconds. Welcome, Erica.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh, thanks for coming. So just. Tell us a little bit about your own journey and how you became a BRCA advocate.
1: Yes. So to actually start the journey, we have to go all the way back to 2007. Okay. I moved to New York almost nine years ago, but I grew up in North Carolina. And I also went to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill uh, for undergrad. So my mom is a two-time breast cancer survivor. My mom had a stage one breast cancer for the first time in 1993 okay. when she was 28 years old. And this was before scientists had discovered that there are genetic mutations that can cause breast, breast cancer and other cancers. Mm. So she had a lumpectomy, she had chemo and radiation, and then she was in remission for about 14 years. Wow. Yeah. And then in 2007, which was my senior year of college, she was doing a self-exam at home and found a lump in her other breast, which turned out to be a second incidence of breast cancer. So since I was going to UNC and UNC has a really great cancer center, a Leinberger Cancer Center, she decided to have all of her treatment done there. And given the fact that she had had cancer twice before the age of 50 and the fact that the second time her cancer was what's known as triple negative breast cancer, which is a more aggressive type of breast cancer, the doctors at UNC were like, oh, you should undergo genetic testing to see if you carry what's called a BRCA mutation. Okay. And I guess to take a step back for the listeners, everyone has BRCA1 and 2 genes. Mm-hmm. And normally when they're functioning, normally they make proteins that prevent cancer. But in individuals who have a mutation in BRCA1 or BRCA2, they have an elevated lifetime risk of developing breast cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, colon cancer, and melanomas. So the lifetime risk of developing breast cancer jumps to about between 70 to 80 percent. So in 2007, my mom found out that she had a BRCA-2 mutation and it's hereditary, which means parents can pass it on to their children. So I knew that I had a 50-50 chance of having a a BRCA-2 mutation as well. So I was about to start law school at Georgetown. I was not gonna undergo (laughs) genetic testing and counseling then. Mm -hmm. So I finished law school, I studied for the bar. I moved to New York, and then finally, in like the fall winter of 2013, I decided that it was time to get undergo genetic counseling and testing myself. I was 28, which was the same age. My mom was diagnosed the first time. I was in a pretty serious relationship at the time uh, with someone who lost their mom to colon cancer. But, you know, something we might talk about later is that there's actually a shortage of genetic counselors in the United States. Oh, okay. So there's... Like they can't keep up with the demand of people who want to be tested. Mm-hmm. So when I was when I was like, okay, I'm going to get tested, I called Memorial Sloan Kettering and they were like, oh, well, we have a six-month wait list for Six people. months? Right. Wow, okay. Because they, they prioritize individuals who have had a cancer diagnosis first because knowing if you're BRCA or not can impact the type of cancer treatment you have. So they were like, you know, because you're unaffected at this point, you're on the second sort of tier of priority. So it's going to take six months. So I was like, okay, that's fine. And then... So that would have been April 2014. And I was, when April rolled around, I was switching jobs. So I had like a 30 or 40 day gap in insurance. Mm. And they were like, if you don't come now, like as a press appointment in April, then like you have to wait till October. So I was like, so I canceled the appointment because I didn't have insurance. And I was talking to a friend of mine about it. And she was like, oh, I know this woman at NYU. Her name is Julia Smith. She runs the high-risk surveillance program at NYU. And she was like, Julia, we'll see you whenever you want to be tested. And Julia, you know, works with a lot of women in their 20s and 30s. She'll be, like, sensitive to what you're going through. So I made an appointment with, doctor, with Dr. Smith in June of 2014. An important distinction is that like Julia is an oncologist, but she's an oncologist who is certified to do genetic counseling and testing. So she was sort of like in a dual function role. Mm -hmm. So she went through my family history. She ordered my mom's medical records from UNC. And one thing I really want to point out to listeners is that sometimes I hear people say, oh, I don't want to do genetic testing because it's expensive and I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. But if you meet certain criteria to be tested, so like for me... I have a first-degree relative, my mom, who is who has a BRCA mutation. So insurance has to pay for the cost of my testing, has to be covered. And because we already knew that my mom had a mutation, they weren't testing the whole gene. Mm-hmm. They were just testing to see if I had that mm-hmm. specific mutation. So I think after insurance, the actual cost of my testing was about like $80. Oh, and, wow. and Julia had told me, you know, if I had run in, she was like, if you run into issues with the insurance, you know, tell me and like, and why you will step in and and take care of it.
0: So just just to pause a little second. So yeah.
1: If if you don't have
0: a relative who has the BRCA gene, around how much would the testing, genetic testing, cost?
1: Yeah, I mean the sort of like n- sticker price that they from so myriad genetics is the the lab that used to do all of the testing for okay. for many years. I guess to add like a legal element into it. Myriad Genetics used to own a patent on BRCA one and two, and the Supreme Court actually struck that down. I think in two thousand seven. Okay. So it used to be about three thousand dollars, but I will say that one thing I always tell people is that if you're thinking about getting genetic testing, you should see a genetic counselor because what a genetic counselor will do is go through your family history and figure out like who actually should be tested. So let's say you have a lot of cancers, maybe on like. And you have to also look at, like, both sides of your family because men can pass it on to their children. So maybe you don't have a first-degree relative, but you might see, oh, wait a minute, there's all these, you know, uncles and aunts and cousins and all this stuff who have had these cancers, and they've been diagnosed at an early age. So you may not be the best person to get tested. It may be testing one of these relatives who have had a cancer, and then they can go back and figure out, like, how it's being passed on, if that makes any sense. It It does. Okay, yeah. So... And I I know that, for example, I know like NYU, Bellevue, Memorial Sloan, Kennery, and a lot of other hospitals do have programs to assist people who need to be tested um, and may like have insurance or other financial issues. So if it's something you're thinking about, it's always worth making the appointment with a genetic counselor. And there's a website called National Society of Genetic Counselors, NSGC.org. And you can put in your zip code and find a genetic counselor that's near you. Okay, awesome. So, okay, so, and I and I guess this is a good segue. So, like, what happened in that? So, I was talking about what happened in the appointment with Julia in June 2014, mm-hmm. and a lot of people are like, "Well, what? How do you actually test?" So, in my case, they they did a they took a blood sample, they sent it off to a lab, and I got the results about yeah, it was about three weeks later. So, I got the results in July 2014. Okay, and so, you know, in the appointment, Doctor Smith was like, "You know, you are positive for BRCA two mutation." And because of your history with your mom, the fact that she's been diagnosed twice at really early ages, the fact that she's had a more aggressive type of breast cancer. She was like, my strong recommendation to you is to that you should have a preventative mastectomy, which is was like total removal of the breast tissue. And she's like, I think you need to do that like as soon as possible. Like as soon as you can schedule this, you should do it. And I was like, oh. I was like, oh, that's a, that's a lot to deal with. Because in the when we were having a counseling session, she was like, yeah, if you're positive, you know, maybe you just do increased surveillance, which would have meant having an MRI and a mammogram every 6 months. She was like, maybe we put you on tamoxifen, which is a a drug, it's like a chemo preventative drug that can sometimes lower your risk. But once she got the test results and she had like looked at my mom's whole medical history, she was like, no, I I really think you should have a preventative mastectomy which obviously at the age of, of 29 is, you know, a lot to hear and deal with. Right, right. So I immediately had to start interviewing not just like the abre- breast surgeons, but also plastic surgeons for the reconstruction portion of it. Okay. And because BRCA is associated with all these other cancers, I had to start seeing a gynecologic OBGYN so that she could monitor the ovarian cancer risk. And I started and to this day now see a dermatologist once a year to check for melanomas. And I also see an ophthalmologist to check for melanomas because you're more likely to get melanoma, which is type of skin cancer. You're more likely to get it in your skin or your eyes, which is something new that I learned. So they're like, so so I guess to get to your real question, which is like, how did I become a, a BRCA awareness advocate? That was just like so much to deal with, you know, And I'm an attorney, so I'm like working at a firm, I'm balancing billing hours, I'm balancing like how my mom feels because my mom is like, oh, I did this to you and she felt all this guilt. Oh, goodness. And I'm also, you know, all of a sudden like going to the doctor more than I've ever gone to the doctor before and thinking about like picking out implants and having to negotiate like taking time off work for, you know, the surgery and all that stuff. So I was like, okay, you know, so I started sort of going online and looking for like support groups or articles and things like that. And I just didn't find, and I I think I'm a pretty good internet researcher. Mm -hmm. I'm always on the internet. I never saw any stories from other black women. And I was like, well, statistically, I know that I cannot be the only black person who who has dealt with a BRCA mutation. That's just like not statistically possible. And so you know so and it was it was interesting cuz at the time or around the same time i had become friends with a lot of people who were freelance writers so a really good friend of mine van newkirk was writing for like gawker and some other places mm-hmm. and i was like hey i think i i think i might like write something about this just because i haven't seen any stories from people who look like me and he was like oh like yeah you sh- you definitely should and like i'll help you like figure out like how to put a pitch together and all that stuff and so ultimately I I wound up writing something for Jezebel which is a like feminist leaning mm-hmm. website just about sort of like my experience like you know learning about BRCA and and getting tested and you know what it was like to sort of not see any other stories from black women and then I had my I had my preventative mastectomy in December of 2014. So, you know, like it was just it was so striking to me to be like I didn't really have a, I had support from my friends, right. but, you know, it was just weird to not see like myself reflected in any of these like stories online. And so sort of from there, and then I always, you know, I'm an attorney, so I research everything. Mm-hmm. So I sort of just started doing like research about like genetic testing and all the stuff among black women. And I learned that, okay, I guess a few different things, right? So the main thing is that we have like really terrible mortality rates for breast cancer for black women in the United States. So right now, if you are a black woman, you are 40% more likely to die from a breast cancer diagnosis than your white counterparts. Wow. Right. And we're also much more likely to be diagnosed at later a later stage. when, it, And we're also more likely to be diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer, which is less responsive to traditional chemotherapy. So I started digging into that. And then I was like, well, wait a minute. Like BRCA, BRCA cancers are, there's sort of like a few things that, might indicate that you have BRCA. So the first is like having a lot of cancers in your family. The other is being diagnosed at an early age. African-American women with breast cancer are much more likely to be diagnosed before the age of 50. Triple negative breast cancers. So I was like, wait a minute, there's got to be some type of like link here, but we're not getting referred to genetic testing and counseling like at the same rates. So sort of like since my diagnosis, I've just been trying to do a lot in terms of like writing and organizing educational panels and also raising money for research to try to just raise awareness around this issue.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because I feel like, oh, well, a couple of different things. I interviewed this researcher one time from, she's now at Vanderbilt University. Her name is Dr. Tuya Powell. Mm-hmm. And so she's been one of the like main researchers researching the connection between BRCA mutations and black women. And I remember her saying to me, she's like, you know, we're moving into a world of precision medicine and personalized medicine, which would be very based based around genetics. And so she's like, BRCA is like sort of our best test case of how that will work. So like if we can't have diversity in testing for this, then like we're, we're probably never going to have like good diversity and like, you know, equitable treatment as we move into like more and more uses of genetics and medicine. So I think that's really important. But also, you know, as hard as it was to like have the surgery and deal with everything, I feel very fortunate that, you know, I saw my mom go through breast cancer when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And I remember what that was like. And I remember like the chemo and the radiation and all that stuff. And because I had this knowledge that she didn't have, you know, knock on wood, I was able to avoid having to go through breast cancer at all. And if I have children, you know, I could take the step of actually using IVF along with genetic screening to avoid passing on to, to my kids if I wanted to. So, Knowing that you have a BRCA mutation, if you have it, is really powerful because it doesn't just potentially prevent cancer in you, the individual. It also gives you the opportunity to potentially prevent cancer in a whole family. Right. So the fact that black women and other women of color are not getting that opportunity is it's just like very it's like very upsetting.
0: It really is. And I, I remember being struck by the article you wrote for, I believe it was O Magazine yeah. about your post-mastectomy experience and thinking yeah. about how how prevalent that story is to a lot of other stories that we've heard regarding, you know, maternal death rates around Black women and just lack of treatment and even the story about Serena Williams and her birth experience and then even previously with her experience with her blood clot and people not necessarily thinking that, you know, you should be in control of your body and should know what's going on more than someone else.
1: Oh, no, definitely. There was a study that just came out this week or last week. So so currently like in the US, if you are diagnosed with breast cancer, it's now like sort of recommended that if you are diagnosed with breast cancer, you should be referred to genetic counseling and testing. And they did a study where they were looking at African-American women who had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And I think maybe 40 to 50 percent of them had never been referred out for genetic counseling and testing, although that is now considered to be like routine breast cancer treatment in the United States, right? Wow. And so they're still trying to do more research to determine what the disconnect is. But, you know, I think from sort of like anecdotally or, you know, some other researchers I've talked to, there's sort of this idea among physicians that like black women aren't going to be interested. Like they're just assuming, oh, they're not going to be interested in that. Or they're not going to be able to pay for it, right? And so you're putting these assumptions on people, which is really unfortunate because there's actually research out there that shows like when black women are offered genetic counseling and testing, they're actually like super enthusiastic about it. Mm. Like, And it's interesting because compared to other sort of different medical interventions, like obviously there is a distrust sometimes of of the medical profession. right? But like BRCA testing is sort of like the one sort of outlier to that. Like when you offer it to black women, they're like super enthusiastic about it. So it's, yeah, it's again, it's super upsetting. It's interesting. So I'll, I'll be really
0: honest. Before I was even introduced to you, we were introduced through our mutual networks. I had only heard of BRCA via the Angeline Jolie. Angelina Jolie, Jolie. yeah. Which was amazing because before that, I hadn't even heard of the BRCA gene. But to think about it, I completely... Understand, I don't know of any women of color who are really talking about BRCA in any kind of public way, shape right. or form. So I think it's definitely very important. But I do want to kind of highlight a little bit more about your OIC magazine yeah. experience because I thought that in a day and age in which people know that these things happen in hospitals, for you, who, I mean, at the end of the day, you're, a, you're an attorney, you're a very educated woman, to experience these things... It's kind of astounding.
1: Yeah. And I guess I'll, you know, for people who maybe haven't seen the article, I did a I did a story last October for O Magazine about racial health disparities, but focused on black women. And the opening the opening to the piece is a story about when I had my mastectomy, which I said back, which I mentioned was in December 2014. So I had the surgery and it was like it was a late afternoon. So by the time I got out, it, it was like super late in the evening. And so I, you know, they took me to my room and I basically tried to fall asleep, did not get very good sleep. So the next day around like 9 a.m. or 10 a.m., they're like, oh, well, you have to be out of the bed by like 12 p.m. And I was like, no, I, I'm pretty sure." Assu- like I, I knew that Blue Cross Blue Shield, who was my insurer at the time, mm-hmm. had given me a letter saying I was authorized for up to 48 hours. And I was like, no, I don't think that's the case because Blue Cross Blue Shield said I can stay for like two days. And they were like, no, we will be penalized. Like if we don't like turn the bed over by 12. So you have to be out by 12. And I was like, okay. So my mom was there with me. And obviously my mom had not slept very well either. So I told my mom, I was like, okay, well, if we have to be out by 12, I want you to call my, my best friend in New York is a guy. He's like, like six three, six four. So I was like, call Adam to come meet us at the hospital. So that way, like When we get home, because I live in a brownstone, so you have to go up a couple flights of stairs. I was like, that way if I have issues getting into the apartment, Adam can, like, help me get into the apartment. Right. And that was also, I should have said this before, it was relevant because I woke up with my implants already, like, fully installed. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. And I didn't, like, get huge implants. I stayed, like, I was a 32C. I stayed a 32C. Mm -hmm. But it really throws off your, like, sense of gravity. Like I remember like having to go to the bathroom. They were like, you can't go to sleep until you go to the bathroom. And I was like, okay. And it was just like so disorienting because there's this like new weight on your body that isn't there before. So I was like, yeah, I want someone to help me in case I need help getting home. So the nurse hears me say that to my mom. And she's like, I don't understand why you think you need to have someone help you get home because it's not like you had surgery on your legs. Which one is just like, nobody asked you super rude (laughs) like and also just like such a lack of sympathy or empathy right it's like no i didn't but i'm also like a 29 year old who just had a double mass a a double mastectomy (laughs) like you could show me some sympathy so that happens and then again to educate the listeners so when you have a mastectomy they install drains that stay in for about a week to like keep draining off the the incisions and they like they run all the way up like to the breast and then they like hang out. So it's really, really important that they don't get infected because if they get infected, it can be really bad because of just like where they are located. Right in your
0: chest, so right, right proximity to lungs, proximity
1: to lungs, heart, all those kinds of stuff. Right. And my mom, that had happened to my mom in 2007 when she had her mastectomy, and she, I mean she was ultimately fine, but she got like very, she got like very sick. She had to have like intravenous antibiotics. So I was like, okay, like the one thing I have to do is make sure like these drain tubes don't get infected. Mm-hmm. And when I woke up the morning after the surgery, oh yeah, it was this, sorry, left breast was already a little bit red. And I, was, and I I could tell that the flow on this side was not flowing as well as the other side. So when they were like, well, you have to leave? And I was like, yeah, I'm a little concerned about this drain. You know, could you call either, you know, my breast surgeon or my plastic surgeon to see like what's going on? And they were like, no you know, if it's not working, you'll just have to like manually pump it to make it flow. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. So somebody just like call one of the two people who just operated on me. Like this is not a, this is not like a crazy request. And they just, they just like wouldn't do it. (laughs) And I'm, and I'm so tired. I was so tired. And I was really lucky because like my, my other really good girlfriend, Courtney, who's also an attorney was not working at the time. So my mom called her and was like, (laughs) <laughs> the the hospital is giving us a really hard time. Will you just, like, come for backup? But it took, like, an hour and a half. And they, like, they kept sending multiple nurses. And then finally they sent this, like, nurse manager in to be, like, oh, you know, like, you're just being difficult. It Like, the drain will be fine. Like, just, you know, we have to, like, discharge you. And I don't even know in the confusion of all this who finally, like, got through to my plastic surgeon. I think it might have been, like, I think at one point I told Adam. I was, like, this is my plastic surgeon's number. Just, like, step out and try to see if you can get someone over, like, someone in her office on the phone.
0: Mm-hmm. Which,
1: so, finally, someone did. And and she's amazing, by the way. And so, Dr. Troy was, like, okay, well, I, like, I can't, I'm not at the hospital because I, like, have to be in my office all day today. But, like, tell the hospital, to like, get you a cab and, like, come over and, like, I'll figure out what's going on. So, we, like, I get discharged. We get in the cab, which, by the way, NYU didn't pay for, even though they're supposed to. So we finally get to Dr. Choi's office and the minute she's the minute she looks at it, she's like, oh, yeah, there's definitely a problem. The like the the incision I made here is not big enough to like allow the allow it to drain properly. So she like it took her five minutes of like fixing it, but it was fine. But I think about it a lot because I'm like, OK, so like if I I was already so tired, if I hadn't if I had just given up or if I didn't have friends for backup or if I, like, you know, couldn't have afforded to take that cab over to Dr. Troy's office. right? You know, maybe I would have had an infection. Maybe it would have been complicated. And it's just wildly bizarre to me that, like, you also, like, you know, I had pretty good health insurance. I think my surgery in total before the insurance was, like, $100,000. Right. Like, you guys made a, a whole bunch of money. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't understand what the sort of deal was. But it just sort of, like, reinforced to me that, like, you know, there is, like, a lot of, there is a lot of like implicit bias and I sometimes think you know I'll say it like the like white people don't see it like I definitely remember like I love my editor at Oprah magazine she's a wonderful person but I remember like telling her that story and some of the other stories that are in the piece and she was like are you sure these are accurate and I was like yeah like I have (laughs) you know I was like yes I I have I have transcripts and all this other you know evidence and stuff like that like but I just think that they Like, I just remember, like, when it was done and filed, because when you do stories at at Oprah Magazine, actually, everybody reads it all the way up to the editor-in-chief. And so I just remember, like, some of them were just like, wow, like, you know, I saw this stuff in the news, but I just, like, didn't realize, like, how, you know, pervasive and, like, prevalent this stuff was, right? So, yeah, it's a—I hope I'm not, like, diverging too much. I just—I saw this article recently— from this woman who's a doctor, and she was like, we keep talking about, like, diversity in medicine, Mm -hmm. but we don't really have a diversity problem. We have, like, a segregation problem. Oh, okay. Right? Like, we keep talking about how we have to diversify these spaces, but it's not really a diversity issue. We've, like, kept black people out of, like, the medical profession and stuff for so long that these spaces are, like, segregated. Mm. And so until you start having, like, a real conversation about that, it's not going to change. And really, the only way we're going to get health equity is we have to increase the amount of, like, black doctors and you know, black nurses and all this kind of stuff, which I thought was really, really interesting, in part because I had, it actually went up this morning, I did a story for NPR about diversity among genetic counselors. So genetic, genetic counseling as a profession has been around since 1987. Oh, really? Yeah, right. And it is actually expected to grow as a profession in terms of the number of people doing it mm-hmm. by about 30% over the next 10 years, which your average profession only grows about 7%. So this, it's like you're going to see an explosive booming. Booming. Yeah. But ever since they've started taking demographics of the professions, that started in 1992, 90% of genetic counselors are white. Only 1% of genetic counselors are black, right? Which obviously is tied to like who gets tested and all these things. So I did a story for NPR that came out this morning about the need to increase the amount of diverse genetic counselors and a lot of diverse genetic counselors I talked to were like, it absolutely makes a difference. You know, if I have a Spanish speaking patient and they realize they can talk to me in Spanish, we just have such a better counseling session. And they were like, a black genetic counselor is just going to fight for their patient or listen to their patient more. Mm -hmm. Right. There's just sort of a natural empathy there. So, yeah, I know that was a lot, but I just feel like sort of these things are all interconnected. Like the bias we face is, I think, in part because like, we just don't have the like, diverse representation we need in the medical profession.
0: No, it's very super helpful. And I think one of the things that I learned just in our pre-conversations was for BRCA, a couple of things was that BRCA doesn't only affect women because I only thought that it was a breast cancer related gene. So just to know that you know you could be a man and not a, not only carrying BRCA and be affected by BRCA but also pass it on to children I think is super helpful for our listeners to know. Yeah. Also didn't realize and which I should have, but I'm not in the medical profession that BRCA is not only just breast cancer, breast cancer, it can be colon cancer, it could be skin cancer, it could be ovarian cancer, prostate cancer. Prostate cancer. Right. And thinking about prostate cancer and its prevalence in the black male community, that's also a very important thing. For our listeners to know that, you know, you shouldn't just think about this as, oh, BRCA, it's a woman thing.
1: Oh, no, for sure. I mean, my grandfather died of prostate cancer and he died, obviously, before we knew that my mom had BRCA. Mm -hmm. But if I had to guess where Mm -hmm. it comes from in our family, I think that's actually where it comes from. Because, like, my, my mom's dad had prostate cancer, which is also associated with BRCA. And then she has it and then I have it. So we don't I don't know that for sure because we were never able to go back and test him. But yeah, so I am glad you raised that as an issue because there are there have been pushes to try to get more black men tested for prostate black men who have prostate cancer to have them also undergo genetic counseling and testing. The other thing I think is really important too is that there are other genetic mutations that can cause cancer mm-hmm. besides BRCA. So some of them are like p53, PALB2. And when we don't get tested, We're not getting tested enough. So often what happens for black people who get tested is that they get their results and they get a result that's called a variant of unknown significance, a VUS, Mm -hmm. which means that there is a genetic break or a mutation in their genes, but we don't have enough evidence to know what it means in terms of their cancer risk, right? So in addition to not necessarily being tested enough for a BRCA, because a lot of us aren't getting tested, we don't have like the data to know what some of these things in us mean. Which is like, it's, all, it's, like it's, own, its own problem, right? Right, right. And then when black people are not like getting tested enough or not in clinical trials, they're testing all these different medicines and they have no idea yes, of their right. effectiveness mm-hmm. in our community because we're not in these databases. Not
0: a subject. Okay. That's, I mean, that's also very interesting. So if you have a cancer risk or you have a proximity, someone in your family who has male or female it's definitely worth Doing the testing and your insurance should pay for it. So know your rights. Yes. And know what you're entitled to.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, just bring, I always tell people like, you know, bring it up in your appointment with your, you know, physician, you know, if you're a woman, bring it up with your OBGYN. And if they're not responsive, but you, you know, you really think you might be a candidate. Again, National Society of Genetic Counselors. Well, you can find genetic counselors in your area and make an appointment
0: and yeah we'll put a lot of the articles that you've written and a lot of the information that you've shared in the show notes. The last thing I want to say is one of the things that struck me about your own journey is the fact that from April to December you found out that you had BRCA, you went through significant surgery, all these other trials and tribulations and then came out on the other side. Talk about someone who was like, oh my goodness, I have like my mom or my dad or an aunt or my grandparent had like had or died of a cancer. What are the steps that they should take?
1: Yeah. So, so before I, I so I will say, One thing that I wish I had done and I I didn't do until after I had my surgery is I started seeing a therapist after I had my surgery. Mm. Even though Dr. Smith was like, you should probably talk to someone about all the stuff you're going through. And I was like, no, I'm okay. And then afterwards, I was like, oh, yeah, I should probably really talk to someone about what I'm going through. (laughs) And my therapist is like very instrumental. I still see her to this day. She was like very instrumental in helping me sort of like Process all these things that had happened to me. Right. And so, in hindsight, I really wish I had started seeing her before. So, I say that to say if someone find, I will say before I say anything else, if you find yourself in, you know, learning you have a BRCA mutation or something like that, you should definitely think about talking to a mental health professional because I think it's really important. But to address your question directly so, if you know or you think you might have a hereditary mutation in your family, I would say step one is, you know, talking about it with your physician or OBGYN and then trying to get a genetic counseling appointment. And then the next step is before you go to the appointment, have as much information about your family history as possible. So that's knowing who on both your mom's side and your dad's side have been diagnosed with cancers. Mm-hmm. So like who's been diagnosed with cancer, the familiar relationship what type of cancer, and then also like the age in which they were diagnosed. Okay. Because the younger younger someone is diagnosed with cancer, that's like a red flag. Mm -hmm. So have all that information before you go to the appointment. And then if you find yourself, like so let's say you learn that you do have a BRCA mutation or another type of mutation. One thing I always stress to people is that, you know, my doctors told me I need to have surgery because of how sort of aggressive cancer has been with my mom. But for, for people who have a different family history, you might not need to automatically jump to surgery. You know, my breast surgeon was like, look, if your mom had cancer when she was 35, I would not tell you to have surgery right now. You could probably wait till you were 35 or even 36 or older. Mm-hmm. You know, so everybody's situations, is like, uh, situations are very unique. So I think, you know, if you find yourself facing this type of diagnosis, like talking, you know, don't be afraid to get like a second opinion, you know, really figuring out like what the options are. And But also, I would say, like, having a conversation, like, with your family members. I mean, I'm an only child, so there's really nobody else in my generation to get tested. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like, my mom's, my mom has two brothers and one sister who all refuse to get tested. We, you know, and that's, like, a difficult conversation and stuff to face. But I think just having more conversations about this stuff, like, I feel like, you know, I meet a lot of people who are like, yeah, I, it turns out, like, my grandmother had cancer, but we didn't talk about it back then. And it was just like... A secretive thing. Yeah. Right. And there's like, I think sometimes a lot of that in our community. So I guess my overall message is like, you know, if you if you're afraid about this it's just like having a conversation about it, because there are a lot of interventions and in things that can be done. You know, it's not like a, it's not like a death sentence, particularly even if you find yourself facing cancer, if you know early, I think like the survival rate, if you catch it, st- breast cancer stage one now is like 95 percent. I mean, there's been like a lot of advances Mm -hmm. in medicine. So I guess my overall takeaway is just like talking about it, like openly and honestly. Awesome. So definitely
0: thank you for all of the knowledge that you've shared for us. And what we do on Bagels and Plantants, we like to, when we're talking about serious topics, or sometimes even if we're not talking about serious topics, we like to kind of end it on a positive note and okay, do a good. few rapid fire questions.
1: <laughs> I felt like that was very serious. It, it
0: was, I, I think the <laughs> level of seriousness was a little high, you know? So the first question is, if you were a food, because we are Bagels and Plantants, what food would you be?
1: Oh, that's a good question. You know what? I'm going to... So yesterday, so my boyfriend and I, my boyfriend's a writer, so he has a lot more... He works very hard, but he has a lot more free time. So, we cook a lot. <laughs> and so, yesterday, we tried this recipe. We made Korean fire chicken. It Ooh. was so good. So, I think I would be Korean fire chicken. Because that's... It was, like, incredible. Is Everyone... It really spicy? You can, like, alter the spice. Like, it is spicy. Okay. But, like, you know, it wasn't, like, intolerable.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. And it only
1: took, like, 30, 40 minutes. But it was, like... We were both just, like... You know how when you eat and you're quiet, no one's talking because everyone's eating? You're just, just in eating. the food, yeah. So... Because that's the last thing I ate, I think I would be Korean fire chicken. But it was amazing.
0: I like that. I'm we'll have to get that recipe too. Okay. What's your favorite place to like think
1: or be creative? Oh, that's a good, that's also a good question. Can I, can I cheat and do two? Sure. <laughs> so I would say the first one is I, I live in Harlem.
0: Shout out there, to Harlem.
1: Shout out to Harlem. <laughs> and there is a place on, I think it's one thirteen called Bruise and Barley, which mm. is like a, co- it's a coffee shop, but it's also a bar. And so a lot of times on weekends, like, if I need a place to go, like, write or just, like, do some extra work, I usually will, like, find myself there, like, working on articles and pitches and stuff like that. I would say the other place is over the past, like, I guess it's seven years at this point. Some friends of mine from law school, we've all, like, rented a summer share, like, out in Montauk. Okay. And actually one of my friends wound up, like, buying a place that sometimes he rents and then sometimes he, like, gives to friends. And so I really like when I'm out there, like, waking up early before everyone else gets up and, like, staying out on our deck and just, like, trying to think or, like, write through stuff. Well, that's awesome. That also sounds like a really peaceful place to be. Yeah. I mean, before everybody gets up, well, like yeah, up and course. starts drinking. <laughs> but yeah. That part, is, that part is not peaceful. But in the morning when it's, like, quiet and you just have, like, a mug of coffee looking at, like, and you're looking at the pool, mm-hmm. that is, like, extremely peaceful. That's awesome.
0: All right. If you could describe yourself in one word, what would it be?
1: Ooh. Energetic. All right.
0: (laughs) And what is the one thing that you want BNP listeners to know about you?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I guess the one thing I want people to take away is that I am just really extremely passionate about this, you know, this health issue. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know what goes in the show notes, but, you know, if you are someone who like finds yourself, you know, dealing with a situation like this, you know, I would find a way to like reach out to me. One of the things that feels like the best the best to me is that I sometimes have people who like reach out to me via Twitter or LinkedIn or just all kinds of ways you know to say like oh like I'm a black woman I'm a woman of color going through this and actually I now have like this it's very informal but there's like it's myself and four other women who are all women of color and we actually all happen to all be attorneys Mm. which is like it was funny but we like meet up probably like once like once, once a month or every couple months just to like be supportive for each other. But that was all just through people like finding stuff that I wrote, reaching out to me on LinkedIn and then like sort of like growing this out. So yeah, that's my takeaway. I'm very passionate about this. And if you find yourself dealing with this, do not hesitate to like get in touch with me.
0: Awesome. And I think that's a good segue to kind of like, where can people get in touch with you?
1: Oh yeah. So people can get in touch with me. My Twitter and Instagram handle is Quidditch. Like like Harry Potter. Q, yeah. <laughs> Q-U-I-D-D-I-T-C-H. 424, which is my birthday. So Quidditch 424. I also have a website with all of my writing and places that I'm speaking or doing events. So that's my name, ericastallings.com. It's Erica with a K. Or, you know, or LinkedIn. I do have people sometimes who are just like, I had no other way to get in touch with you. <laughs> but I... You're on LinkedIn. and I'm like, all right, that's, that's cool too. But yeah, Twitter, Instagram, or my personal website,
0: erikastylings.com. Awesome. So thank you so much, Erica. This has been a very informative conversation. And I hope that it's inspired some of our listeners to not only take more control of their own health, but to kind of not be afraid of BRCA or any sort of cancer-related genetic testing or things of that sort. So thank you so much. Thank you. All right. And so you know where you can find us. We're Bagels and Plantains on Instagram and... That's thank you for tuning in to bagels and plantains with your girls Deidre and Christina if you like the flavor we're kicking in your ear and want to know more about upcoming guests follow us on the gram at bagels and plantains if you want to show us even more love then don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes or drop a little of that coin into the support bucket at our Patreon link below in our show notes so we can keep bringing you the latest and the greatest thank you again for tuning in